This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, Dr. Michael Dixon, an advisor uh, with the Canadian Space Agency, is standing by to discuss methods of growing food on Mars. Uh, will be with us just in mere moments. And if uh, man is going to colonize the red planet, we need to figure out how uh, to grow food, obviously, in order to sustain the uh, the colony. Uh, I seem to recall that Matt Damon's character in The Martian uh, was growing potatoes on Mars. Uh, but somehow I don't think that's what Stomp and Tom Connors had in mind when he sang Bud the Spud from the Bright Red Mud. Not that red mud. Rolling down the highway smiling. Remember that? <laughs> Uh, before that, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Gibson Flying V guitar, my technical producer and fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson. And on Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my story producer, Albert Vinzel. Say hello, Albert. On the Hammond B, my intern, Ryan White. Good to have you all aboard. Uh, coming up in the uh, the next hour... Uh, the prolific and compelling storyteller Nick Redfern. His latest is 365 Days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters, and uh, we'll also conduct our uh, weekly or semi-weekly remote viewing experiment. Again, that's the next hour. A little segment we like to call What's in the Box? And as always, if you want to play along at home and utilize your remote viewing skills, transcend time and space and identify the mystery object sitting on the desk here in uh, studio at uh, 70 Jefferson Avenue in Liberty Village, Toronto. Use the hashtag TCS Remote. TCS, that's The Conspiracy Show, abbreviated TCS Remote. Uh, actually, I don't actually have the uh, the famous uh, box for our What's in the Box segment. It's mysteriously gone missing. I think one of my boys is now using it to store his baseball cards, and it got shoved under a bed somewhere, but it'll turn up. Um, a programming note next week on the program, George Freund 
from Conspiracy Cafe. We'll uh, discuss the United Nations, the CIA versus Trump, the end of the liberal world order, and more. Uh, plus, actress Marina Anderson. Um, Marina has appeared in a number of episodes of Bones. I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with that te- television program. Um, she was formerly married to the, uh, the actor, the late David Carradine. And uh, Marina has had um, a number of paranormal experiences that she'll be sharing with us. That's all next week on the program. Uh, please take a moment, as always, to get on up to the website strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. And that is really a landing page for my various projects, radio, television, live events, the radio section, of course. That's where you'll find this program, The Conspiracy Show. Lots to check out there. There's an affiliates page if you want to find a radio station close to you that carries the, this, this uh, program. There's also a blue button on the left-hand side. Pay attention to that. That's where you can register and become a member. It's fast, easy, and free. And once you register as a member, you gain access to member-only areas of the website. And also, please check out the, uh, the new website, just recently rebuilt, relaunched for my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. That's theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, there's an episode guide there for all four seasons and also an online store, which is brand new. You can browse and buy Conspiracy Show merchandise. There's mugs and sweatshirts and T-shirts and hoodies and phone cases, all with the Conspiracy Show logo. All right. To the main entree we go. I read this in the, uh, the Daily Mail earlier this week. For any astronauts hoping to survive on the surface of Mars, growing crops in the arid soil of the red planet will be an essential. Will be an essential. Uh, now, researchers have shown that it's not only possible to grow vegetables in soil similar to that found on Mars, but they're also safe to eat. Scientists at the uh, Wageningen, Wening, uh, I'm not going to pronounce that one. It's a university in the Netherlands anyway. They're able to achieve abundant harvests of 10 different crops, including radishes, peas, tomatoes, cress, rocket, and rye. Rocket. It's a type of lettuce, but how apropos. Uh, tests showed the plants contained no dangerous levels of heavy metals, and the researchers declared the results as promising. It suggests that it may indeed be possible for astronauts hoping to emulate Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon in The Martian, by growing their food on the alien world. Although the researchers did not use actual Martian soil, they used dirt from Earth to create a mix that was as close to that found on the surface of Mars as possible. Closer to home, some pretty clever people are also trying to figure out how to grow crops on Mars. One such joins us for the next 40 minutes or so, Dr. Michael Dixon is the director of the Controlled Environment Systems Research Facility and Program and chair of the Environmental Biology Department at the University of Guelph. Off campus, he is the Technology Exchange Coordinator for the International Advanced Life Support Working Group, which is a strategic planning group offering information and personnel exchange between international space agencies, such as NASA. CSA, ESA, RSA, and JAXA, that's Japan. He's also chair of the Space Exploration Advisory Committee of the Canadian Space Agency and a member of the Life Science and Technical Committee within the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. As project leader for the Canadian research team investigating the contributions of plants to life support in space, Dr. Dixon formed the Space and Advanced Life Support Agriculture Program at the University of Guelph. 
This program currently represents Canada's prime contribution to the International Space Program Objectives in Life Support. Dr. Dixon, welcome aboard. Thanks for hanging out with us this evening. Well, good evening, Richard. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. So, this is, uh, this is news to me. I mean, most of us in southern Ontario are very well familiar with the work of the University of Guelph in agriculture. It's a world leader. Uh, but now you've managed to marry space, uh, uh, space and, and agriculture under one roof. So tell me a little bit more about uh, the, uh, the program at the University of Guelph. When did it get started and, and, uh, and uh, who funds it and, um, and the like? Okay, well, it's, uh, it started back in the mid-90s, and um, we started, you know, rather small, obviously, but in the course of uh, the last 20 years or so, um, Canada has made some very significant investments. Um, the federal government, the provincial government, um, and industry partners uh, have helped us build up essentially the the most unique and probably the the uh, largest single recent investment in uh, in the kinds of tools that you need to figure out these issues of going to space and growing plants for food for life support now um, many of us saw Matt Damon uh, growing um, potatoes on the Martian and he had these nice little this nice little cultivated area underneath this, you know, inside this structure, nice little furrowed rows and so forth. Mm. But how accurate a depiction is that? Is that how you imagine you would be growing food? You would actually be cultivating the soil or would it be done hydroponically or, or, or how? Well, probably a little bit of both. Uh, there's a lot of research and testing and questions to respond to uh, about taking plants into space little things like how do you like the radiation environment and how does your genetics um, continue after you know a few cycles of uh, regeneration so there there are some profoundly important questions to be looked into quite deeply long before we would have fields of tomatoes and potatoes and rice and wheat and all the long, the long list of candidate crops that we work on uh, for this particular issue, but uh, that's fair, a fair ways off in the future. I'm going to say decades, um, but certainly long before that, we'll be walking on Mars and checking the place out. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll end up growing it in some kind of controlled environment. That's one of the things that we do at Guelph is come up with the engineering criteria for that greenhouse on the moon or Mars. And I don't know what you, how much you know about Mars, but it's not a particularly hospitable place. It's uh, very cold. Average temperature is around minus 60 or minus 70. Um, the day length, though, is quite uh, favorable. It's only about a half an hour longer than Earth's day length, so that's kind of normal. But the seasons are twice as long, so it takes two years for the two Earth years for Mars to go around the sun. Um, and and the the climate is kind of miserable. There's not much of an atmosphere, and what little there is of the atmosphere, less than one percent of Earth's atmosphere, is mostly carbon dioxide. Indeed, one of the uh, poles is made up of frozen carbon dioxide, so dry ice. Uh, so it's it's a pretty miserable, miserable, harsh environment. 
uh, for survival and the engineering requirements to uh, support humans and plant life. And by the way, we're not leaving the planet without green plants. Um, that's an app. We're not, or at least, we're not going very far, and we're not going to stay very long uh, unless we can have plants providing long-term, indefinite, sustainable, bioregenerative life support. Right. I, I, I began uh, the segment uh, referring to this article in the Daily Mail about this study at a university in the Netherlands where they are simulating uh, Martian soil. How, how do, are you doing anything like that? And, and, and how would one simulate the Martian soil? Well, it's, it's based on the measurements that were taken by rovers. We've had uh, a number of rovers go up and bounce around on the surface of Mars for, for quite a long time and, and make measurements, send data back about the constituent elements on the surface of Mars. So we have a pretty fair, you know, even though we've never actually returned a sample, of, of Martian regolith, Martian soil, as they say, um, to confirm exactly what the mineral content is, if any, et cetera. Um, the, the analytical tools that we've sent up have been able to determine, for example, that there's water uh, on Mars. It's frozen, of course. Um, and, and the constituents of the surface, in some degree of reliability, not 100%, though. And so it, it's still, that's still a question that further research will be required. I mean, I, you know, I, I would want to send a robot up there with a few seeds and um, put them in a sample of Martian regolith, add some water, and stir. <laughs> basically the way, the way life sort of works right. here. But that's going to be a while from now. Well, uh, the the essential nutrients for growing plants. I mean, nitrogen. Would would the red planet have nitrogen in the soil, or would it be would it be fairly sterile? It is likely quite sterile, uh, as is the moon, for example. So th- there's there's not a lot of what we call life. However, I'm convinced, uh, as as a scientist in this field, I'm convinced, and I dare I say you heard it here first, I'm convinced that we will find some form of either microbial life or the vestiges of microbial life or some kind of life form, especially when we start digging deep down into the bowels. Of All right. We will start to dig deep down. We'll dig deep on the other side. We'll take a time out, come back with Dr. Michael Dixon, University of Guelph, How to Grow Food on Mars, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Dr. Michael Dixon, University of Guelph, advisor to the Canadian Space Agency, How to Grow Food on Mars. And a quick shout-out to all of you streaming us live on YouTube. Please take a moment and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And then you can watch radio. How's that? 
All right. Uh, so some of the challenges uh, of growing food on, on Mars, uh, Dr. Dixon, the, um, you mentioned uh, lack of atmosphere. Also, uh, microgravity. Uh, how, do, how do plants grow up in a um, – or how do plants fare in a, in a, in a, uh, a microgravity situation? Well, p- plants um, replace up with where the light is and down with where the water is. But uh, on on Mars and even on the Moon, uh, there is an up and a down. Mars is, has about one third of Earth's gravity, and the Moon is about one sixth. Um, so that that's not a problem. It, it, microgravity applies when you're in low Earth orbit on, say, the International Space Station, or on a transit mission to Mars, which takes about six or seven months to get there with current propulsion technology. Of course, you've got to wait for a couple of years um, for the Earth to come back around so that you can swing back to the Earth from Mars. So, uh, uh, But as I say, just to get to the microgravity issue, um, the, the low Earth orbit applications will never have large-scale biological life support or plant-based life support systems in in the microgravity application where such as low earth orbit it's only a few hundred kilometers away you can resupply it um, forever Um, so the issue of resupply becomes a little more dodgy when you're on mars and the round trips two and a half to three years Um, the mass and energy cost of resupplying the food and water requirements become prohibitive so eventually with larger scale and longer term exploration missions on the red planet we'll have to start building up um, a biological life support system to replace the physical chemical systems that we currently use in space exploration um, because we can't afford the mass and energy cost of resupplying them the um, back to the soil uh you, you mentioned that it's pretty sterile, although you wanted to go on the record on this program that uh, you believe at some point they will discover microbial or the vestiges, I suppose, of microbial life uh, in the soil. But there's also uh, – the Martian soil is also laced with a lot of nasty chemicals. Um, tell me about those. Well, you've got me there because that's not exactly my – geology and, and uh, is, isn't my field. I don't feel very comfortable in that. Okay area. I can talk to you about uh, about the life support challenges, but uh, in terms of, of what's in the dirt, um, it's a long list of stuff that I really don't yeah, know. Something perchlorates or something like that. So they would have to be, somehow they would have to be obviously removed. Um, or, or just avoid them altogether. I mean, we're not we're not going to be doing much out on the surface of Mars other than poking around and, and doing geological assessments. Uh, we're, we're going to be in controlled environments. Right. And uh, the, setting up the engineering requirements for the controlled environments that, uh, uh, that house humans as well as plants. Um, you know, just that show the Martian was, was reasonably um, scientifically um, valid, actually, in many respects, except, of course, for the wind. With a 0.6 kilopascal total pressure in the atmosphere, um, which is almost a vacuum, I mean, you'd need quite a few hundred kilometers an hour just to mess your hair. So, <laughs> so to be blowing 
spaceships over and stuff like that, I think Hollywood took a little, little, ah. little bit of license. Well, as they are wont to do. Fair enough. Um, what sort of crops do you think would would fare best? First of all, uh, matched to the uh, you know the soil and the conditions, but also what foods would be would be um, uh, offer? I guess the best nutritional density. Well, it it's it's actually pretty straightforward. There there's actually a list of candidate crops for space exploration, and they are a very conventional list of uh, those crops that make up a nutritional, well-balanced, vegetarian, obviously, diet. And uh, there's, there's a committee that sort of ponders this and goes over. There's, it's, it's an international committee, and I sit on it. We haven't met for a while, but um, uh, when I, when I very, the very first time I went, which was about oh, more than 20 years ago, uh, I proposed my very first two proposals were roses and barley. And I had ulterior motives for both of those candidate crops. Roses, because I am I was at the time being very heavily supported by the Ontario rose growers <laughs> from Leamington and elsewhere. Uh, sadly, there is no rose growers, or there isn't much of a rose growing industry in Ontario anymore. Nevertheless, Roses and barley. So roses were rejected almost immediately because you can't afford the mass and energy cost of growing a plant that you can't eat. Right. And so roses were struck off. And barley, it just so happened that um, that same year I was appointed as one of the conveners of the Malt Whiskey Tasting Society of Canada. (laughs) And so I... Full disclosure. Full disclosure. levity into the proceedings. (laughs) I I supported my argument for barley in that uh, in all of human history, wherever we go, we end up making alcohol. And I figured it may as well be the good stuff. Good point. Good point. Um, All right. But aside from from roses and, and barley... Uh, I'm, I'm guessing there would be the root vegetables. There would be things like... Uh, what? Wheat, potatoes, uh, wheat, rice, soybeans, corn, peas, beans. Um, you know, just think of a, of a nutritious, well-balanced vegetarian diet and then back out the uh, plants that you'd have to grow to, uh, to, to produce that and the quantities and the air. Each of us, you and I, would each need between 60 and 80 square meters of plant production uh, with a wide variety of these, you know, 30 or 40 different crops. Um, between 60 and 80 square meters per person uh, to, to provide all of the functions of your life support. And that is driven entirely by food. Food limits the equation about how far from Earth we can go and how long we can stay. And 60 to 80 square meters of plant production gives you all the food you need. It gives you twice the oxygen you need. It it scrubs twice the CO2 that you produce. And it recycles twice the amount of fresh water that you need. Hmm. Uh, Are you working at all with the Mars Desert Research Station? No. I've I've worked with the... uh, the Mars Society briefly when I up on Devon Island in the high high Arctic in the Canadian Arctic, uh, a couple of my students built a greenhouse up there with 
And one of my students, uh, Matt Bamsey, spent a summer, uh, a season with the Mars Society up there as a, as a sort of a you know, genuine imitation astronaut, if you will, um, playing by the rules of engagement that you would have to use if you were on Mars. So suiting up to go out, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, Matt is, is uh, a candidate for the next Canadian astronaut. Hmm. Fascinating. That's wonderful. Um, so much to discuss here, but I, 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 something that's always fascinated me, and that is the possibility of terraforming uh, Mars. So instead of obviously growing plants in a temperature air-controlled greenhouse, they would be out in the Martian elements uh, eventually. I mean, how feasible is it, would it be how long would it take, and I don't know if this is within your purview to, to talk about this, but how difficult it would be and how long would it take to terraform Mars? It would be massively difficult. Mars used to be quite a bit like Earth. It used to have a much more uh, significant atmosphere, uh, you know, much more complicated atmosphere with, with a lot more different gases. It, its temperature was higher. Uh, it had a molten core. It had a magnetic field. It has none of the above anymore. It's it's uh, it's a lump. <laughs> it uh, doesn't have my, its atmosphere is gone. Its magnetic field. There's a couple of spots of magnetic field here and there around the planet, but it it's largely uh, you know a, a big red, partly completely frozen uh, block floating around in space. So terraforming something of that nature, I, I have a feeling the technical challenge is certainly not within the, uh, the limits of our imagination today based on the technology we can bring to bear. What would, what would you, you need to do uh, if you were to attempt to terraform? Um, and that's basically to, to regenerate the, the atmosphere and so forth in Mars, uh, or on Mars, what would you need to do uh, in order to bring that about? You'd have to do some pretty serious large-scale chemistry on the surface to, to get an atmosphere. Pump oxygen into the, into the soil and microbes and things like that? Well, microbes would have a hard time, at least microbes that we know. There, there was a Mars uh, simulation chamber down at Kennedy Space Center. In fact, it's still there. I think they still use it on occasion. And it, it basically simulated um, the, the conditions on the surface of Mars, including the ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Uh, we didn't, it doesn't include the, the, the cosmic radiation that may or may not occur uh, periodically, but just, it's bad enough just being minus 60 or minus 70 um, and 0.6 kilopascals of total pressure uh, mostly CO2, 95% of that CO2. So we can replicate those that, those environment conditions in this chamber down at Kennedy Space Center. And uh, a colleague of mine there, Andy Sherger, who's at the University of Florida, uh, was testing, you know, will microbes survive under those conditions? Well, so far the answer is no. Um, on the surface, the ultraviolet radiation alone, which in the absence of much of an atmosphere to attenuate it. Here, here on Earth, UV comes through at about 300 or so nanometers. That's the wavelength of ultraviolet A that comes through. Uh, 
on on Mars it's 200 nanometers, so extremely toxic. To say uh, the least, right. Yeah, instant suntan. <laughs> you know, maybe an obvious question, but why go to Mars then? It's so inhospitable. Why go? Well, why climb Mount Everest? Uh, why dive deep into the, the ocean? We're humans, and we do this kind of stuff, I guess. It's just in our nature to explore. Um, it, it's there. And we're almost certainly going to find out something more detailed about the origins of life on Earth. Um, Mars and Earth and indeed most of the planets in our solar system have been trading bits and pieces of each other for millennia. And it's almost a certainty that some critter came along on a Martian meteorite or vice versa for that matter. And uh, that's why I'm so convinced that we will almost certainly find at least the vestiges of some sort of life form uh, when we dig a deep hole on Mars. Why not go back to the moon and, and try and figure out how to grow crops there first? Wouldn't that be a, a logical intermediary step? It's a it's a very it's a very uh, long-winded debate among scientists and and governments because it, it, you need the political will obviously before the economics start to make sense and uh, it, it's been a a growing debate and it goes back and forth. Um, most of us, I, I will say, and I'll include myself in this feel just as you just suggested that yeah you go back to the moon you figure out you break stuff there because it's only three days away after all um and and learn learn what's easy and what's hard and fix it and then go to mars and uh the the chances of success are probably significantly better at least in my mind they are do you have i mean have you been uh told like how quickly to ramp this this up this project in order to uh to be able to, to you know to grow crops on mars in other words is there a timeline for that you're aware of for putting boots on the ground in mars not at the moment there was a, briefly a timeline when uh the last bush was in office um and there there was a moon mars and beyond kind of storyline that was but the, the political will wax and wanes and and uh, at the moment today for in in Canada for example I have no mission to go into space and grow a plant and without a mission there's no money so all of the funding for the research activities that we undertake at, at Guelph uh, although they're everything we do is pulled by the technical requirement to go to the moon or Mars and grow a plant for human life support. Uh, but it is driven entirely by the investments of mostly industry partners who want to get in on the ground floor, floor of the latest technologies in controlled environment production systems and, uh, and, and apply them to terrestrial applications in the agri-food sector, greenhouses, etc. All right, Dr. Dixon, we'll take a time out, come back, and continue to discuss growing food on Mars. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. 
or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Dr. Michael Dixon from the University of Guelph, advisor to the Canadian Space Agency, and we're talking about how to grow food on Mars. Uh, now, in The uh, the Martian, uh, Matt Damon's character, I'm trying to think, how does he get the water? He, he does It's something from the, uh, from the rocket fuel? Uh, what does he do? Distill the rocket fuel or something? How? I mean, how how would you do that? How would you get water uh, to, to water the plants on Mars? Well, there there's quite a bit of water on Mars. Um, you, that was confirmed uh, by the Phoenix lander some years ago. I think back in 2010 or so. Um, and they they so you would have to melt it, and it would it would cost you some energy to. Uh, to use the water that's there. All right. Yeah. Somehow he was creating it out of the um, uh, out of the rocket fuel, but I don't think they went into great detail. I think that might, yeah, I don't, might, I don't might be problematic. Myself, I read the bloody book too, and I I can't <laughs> remember exactly those details. But uh... and in terms of fertilizing it, uh, uh, good old Matt was uh, he was putting his well. Forgive my uh, my crudeness. He was just putting his poop right on the plants. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, you can't do that. Well, sure you can. Really? Wouldn't that be toxic? We do here with all the the uh, organic refuse from uh, all of you know chickens and pigs and cows. Uh, but, but it has to break there. down. Or it goes on the field, and we use it to grow grow plants. But doesn't it have to break down over a period of time? You don't just put it directly on there. Well, yeah, it does. Uh, the microbial critters. Microbes win, by the way, so the microbial systems would uh, break down and nitrify the the nitrate nitrates, the nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, and the other fourteen different micro elements that you need um, for growing plants would be provided in that way. Because we, you know, we eat them. I mean, if you eat the plant, then uh, those bits and pieces are recycled. Right. Now, I read somewhere where uh, the average human diet um, requires about a thousand different crops by the time you figure out everything that we eat. I mean, that's, that's uh, <laughs> pretty ambitious. Yeah. That, I, I wouldn't say it requires that. Um, I would say that that's what's available to us currently uh, around the world in, okay. in uh, all the variety of different foodstuffs that we create from plants, but what you require uh, is, can be made up of anywhere from 50 to 60 plants. Oh, is that all? Yeah. Okay. You know, I think eggs are, uh, not that I'm, you know, working for the Ontario Eggs Marketing Board or anything, but I think eggs are the perfect food. Uh, and I love eggs. Uh, I mean, is this crazy? Why not take you know, some chickens up there? <laughs> well... 
yeah, that's not a bad item. I'm kind of partial to eggs myself, but uh, I suppose you could take some fertilized eggs up with you and and start that way. But uh, once again, nothing's going to happen in a hurry here, as you've seen from the way the space program goes. We don't have a Jack Kennedy uh, telling us we're going to go to the moon in a decade anymore. Those days are gone. So we have to justify the the political will and the economics. And, you know, one of the biggest questions I get traveling around is, uh, so this is going to cost, you know, billions of dollars. Uh, and And people somehow have the strange notion that you're going to take a big gunny sack full of cash and bury it on the surface of the moon or Mars, and that's the that's how the investment is done. Well, no, the investment is done, in our case, in the Canadian economy. You you know, Canada is almost too perfect as a country to take on the technical challenge of even bits and pieces of the space exploration initiative. And life support is, in my mind, the next Canada arm. Uh, we oh. come by our leadership in this field now, quite honestly, because, let's face it, the next worst place after a snowbank in Canada to try and grow a plant has got to be the surface of the moon. And uh, the technology challenge is almost identical. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, what about the uh, the lighting? Uh, how would you grow, uh, under what lighting conditions? Do you imagine you'd, you'd like to use the free light that the sun offers, but that comes at a cost, and that cost is radiation, uh, ultraviolet radiation at the very least, and probably other aspects. Cosmic galactic cosmic radiation mm-hmm. is a real bugger. It's uh, it, it, it's very nasty and uh, very difficult to protect yourself from unless you're down in a hole. So under those circumstances, if, if we can't use the free light from the sun, then the, the next choice, of course, is, is an artificial source. And the top of the list in technology here today is, is light-emitting diodes, LEDs. Right, right. They're, they're going to replace just about every light in your life. <laughs> That's what they keep telling us when they send us the hydro bill. Switch over to LED. Yeah. So buy stock, I guess. <laughs> um, another silly question, perhaps. I ask a lot of them. I mean, it, I do a little gardening. We've got a, a, a garden in the back, and I grow tomatoes and so forth. And it's hard work, uh, and it's tricky. How do you – I mean, I don't even like to wear gardening gloves because I can't grip, you know, if I'm tie, trying to tie the tomato plants and so forth. I'm trying to try to wrap my head around – Gardening in a you know in a full pressurized suit for crying out loud that's going to be tricky. Ah uh, no, see you wouldn't do it that way, especially on on Mars or or in any harsh environment. We would create the uh, appropriate environment. It would be a shirt sleeve environment for humans and and uh, and, and appropriate for plants. Plants can uh, can adapt to almost an order of magnitude variation in all the environment variables that that are important to them, except temperature, and it's almost half an order of magnitude there. We're the wimpy ones. Uh, (laughs) Indeed we are. Indeed we are. All right, another quick uh, timeout. Come back and finish up with Dr. Michael Dixon growing food on Mars right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, 
and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dr. Michael Dixon stays with us, University of Guelph and uh, advisor to the Canadian Space Agency. You know, it's, um, you've advised uh, a, a different space agencies. And what's remarkable to me, and uh, I mean, this is maybe a little bit going back into history, but I, I don't know to what extent uh, this cooperation was there during the Cold War. I've heard that it was. And, and some say we may be heading into another Cold War with relations with uh, Mr. Putin. But but above all of that geopolitical fray, this cooperation in terms of space agencies seems to continue. It, that's remarkable. Yes, uh, there, there's a, a committee called the Committee for Space Research. COSPAR is the acronym. And every two years, it's an international group, and every two years, somewhere on the planet, we meet. And uh, except this past year, 2016, we were supposed to meet in Istanbul, and um, for the obvious reasons of the local uh, tensions and right. political unrest, uh, we had to cancel. And I think that's the first time in my memory that, that uh, especially for reasons like that, that this meeting was canceled. But groups around the world, uh, you know, I've met in Russia. Um, we've been everywhere. So we, there, there doesn't appear to be any secrets among us scientists in this particular field uh, of space exploration. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's all for one, if you will, and um, the, the publications, everyone has access to all the information, so there's no secrets. The, um, the first horticulturalist on Mars, we're hoping, will be Canadian. Um, tell the three-year-olds that I talked to, or the, the grade three students in the Tomato Sphere Project, that's exactly what I tell them. The first Canadian horticultural mission specialist on the trip to Mars is in grade three today. Okay, so that now we have a kind of a timeline. So in grade three, that would make them eight, nine years old. Yep. So we could be on track for 2030. Oh, absolutely. I, there's no question that we'll get there in the next couple of decades at the most. Um, it, it, the issue is, though, you know, continuing and building up the, uh, the, the, the sort of exploration activities, the, the scale and depth of the exploration activities and the number of people and the, and the number of trips and we're kind of limited because it's every 26 months is when we line up with Mars. So you got to plan ahead, and uh, mind you, we'll come up with propulsion technologies that will shorten the trip con- considerably. And uh, those, those, you know, just imagine what's happened in the last 50 years or the last 30 years, and extrapolate the technology developments into the next 30 years. 
Um, right. I'm guessing in 2030 we won't be using rocket fuel. That's just my estimation. I could be way off base there. But I was reading recently they're talking about fusion reactors uh, by 2027. So who knows? Exactly. Um, I'm, I'm confident that we'll come up with some remarkable technologies that we haven't even thought of yet. I mean, how long ago was it that you couldn't even conceive of a cell phone? Right. I mean, my gosh, we've been using rocket fuel for 70 years. I mean, it's a little bit the way, like the way we, we transmit electricity. It hasn't really changed in 100 years. I mean, come on, let's get serious. Um, but you, may, you maintain that the stumbling block uh, remains radiation because we don't know uh, how radiation is going to affect uh, the genetics of the plants and so forth. And, and the best way to do that is, uh, is to test that out on the moon, I'm guessing. Uh, or, or just, um, you know, on, on the route. I mean, you don't have to get to the moon. Just get away from the, the safety of Earth's atmosphere. Right. Right. And, uh, and you're into some pretty nasty radiation. The Van Allen belts. Exactly. So there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot to learn. I mean, we're just at this, the leading edges here of the technology developments. You know, we have to be able to recycle everything. You can't throw stuff away when you go into space. So there, there will be no garbage. You have to recycle it all. And that's, you know, a lot of what we do at, at Guelph is coming up with recyclable technologies, recyclable products, controlled environment uh, strategies that recycle atmosphere and water. And guess what? We're being legislated into recycling water in most agri-food jurisdictions around the planet here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the current market and application for a lot of this space exploration technology we're developing. Uh, it, it has a home here both a commercial and a practical home here on Earth. Well, that's, that was my next question, and that is, how does space agriculture research help us here on Earth? So you mentioned water recycling. What else? How else does it help us? Well, the, the kinds of commodities the, uh, and, and recyclable products. Uh, you know, we, we can't throw away the growth medium, for example, um, and the, the amount of growth medium that we throw, the amount of rock wool we throw away here in greenhouse, the greenhouse sector is, is amazing. So I can't do that on the moon and Mars. I have to be able to recycle everything. So we're coming up with products that you can do that with. Uh, the, the other part is the, the kinds of commodities and medicines. <clears throat> Plants will be the source of a lot of our medicines, just as they are here on Earth. Um, but the, the, as I call it, the phytopharmaceutical sector is, is the, uh, the, the industry sector here on Earth that has a profit margin that can consume the technical risks that guys like me represent in terms of the level of technology that we would deploy to grow. A, um, you know, we're growing cancer drugs in tobacco plants, for example, just for the sheer irony of it, I guess. Right, right. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, maybe that's... Uh, maybe that, that's where they'll legalize marijuana first on the red planet, and they well, exactly. can. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we're we're very heavily inundated by inquiries from the marijuana community in the last couple of years because of the changing laws here in Canada. But it, cannabis needs to have this kind of research applied to it so that it can raise its status 
from that of a joke to a bona fide conventional pharmaceutical commodity. How do you think marijuana would do on the Red Planet? How would it grow? That's, I'd like to find out. <laughs> oh, I bet you would, Dr. Dixon. No, <laughs> oh, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the shelter that you're going to grow these plants in, uh, I mean, would it, obviously you have to deal with the radiation. We've talked about that. But you've also talked about how resilient plants are. So, I mean, would, you, would it have to be like a rigid type of greenhouse or would it be under a tent? What would, what would the habitat for these plants look like? It, well, one of the things that we did, in fact, I had a grad student a few years back who came up with essentially the engineering criteria for a greenhouse on the moon or Mars. So you've got a vacuum there. And if you need to have full Earth atmosphere, that was one of the first questions we asked in the, in the facility that we developed at Guelph uh, that we, we started building in 2000. <clears throat> Sorry. And um, we asked, how low can you take the pressure and still have plants performing all the functions of human life support? And if the answer to that question 15 years ago had been, well, you need full Earth atmosphere, then we're almost done now. Human exploration, long-term exploration with biological systems is over because full Earth atmosphere, I've got chambers at Guelph that can hold that gradient, that you know vacuum inside and full Earth atmosphere outside, so the reverse would be required. And those chambers have one and a half square meters of growing area, and they weigh eight tons. Oh, my. <laughs> and remember what I told you, you, you and I each need between 60 and 80 square meters. So the math is silly. The mass and energy cost, and that's the currency of space travel, uh, is prohibitive to require full Earth atmosphere. So we learned that plants can handle it all the way down to a tenth of Earth's atmosphere as long as they have enough oxygen. That's the limiting variable. What about the carbon dioxide? Well, carbon dioxide is just a squirt of, uh, of a component of the atmosphere for photosynthesis. It's parts per million as opposed to percents of the atmosphere. So our atmosphere here is roughly 21% oxygen, and the rest is mostly nitrogen and a bunch of other stuff. But the oxygen, as long as you've got about uh, 7 kilopascals instead of 21 kilopascals of the 100 here on Earth, uh, as long as you've got seven, plants can manage. Uh, they don't flourish, but they can perform their functions as a life support system. And uh, humans can't, of course. So uh, I suspect that the, the, uh, the, the mission to Moon and Mars will have habitats that are around half of Earth's atmosphere. Uh, with a slightly enriched oxygen. They'll have essentially the same oxygen as here, so 21 kilopascals of oxygen, and half of Earth's atmosphere would be about 50 kilopascals. So it would be um, an, an enriched oxygen relative to Earth, but uh, uh, that is a shirt-sleeve environment for us, That's uh, and plants can do very, very well in that indeed. So, um, tomorrow morning, you're going to get up, you're going to head over to the University of Guelph, and uh, what are you going to be working on? Uh, well, we've got a long list of experiments and projects. We are, uh, as I said, growing cancer drugs in tobacco plants. Uh, 
Uh, we ha- I have three grad students working with the cannabis industry sector trying to figure out um, how to turn that into a pharmaceutical commodity. And we're also working with LED lighting. We have lamps, or I guess we had lamps, seven of them, that when you turn them on full blast give you five times the intensity of the sun. Um, but we blew them all up not too long ago, oh, and they're just being replaced now. So there's a bit of a technical chore there to put together our latest toys. And uh, and we have some new... We, we've developed and, and, and uh, licensed technology that we've labeled the Guelph Blue Box Chamber. And Blue Box refers to the recycling programs, and these chambers, these growth chambers, uh, are designed to recycle everything, all the water and oxygen and atmosphere, uh, indefinitely. And then we have highly precise instrumentation to measure what's happening, um, how the plants respond to different environment challenges, different lighting levels. Uh, turns out you can change the size, shape, taste, color, chemical composition of a plant just by messing with the color of the light. Fascinating. Well, uh, this has been enlightening, uh, Dr. Dixon, and um, by 2030, when uh, we have set foot on the moon, or rather on Mars, uh, they may not be astronauts so much as farmers. Exactly. Thanks in large Uh, measure to your work. Appreciate it. Cultural mission specialists, I guess we'll call them. All right. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Richard. Dr. Michael Dixon, University of Guelph. My website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Why, thank you for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft... That greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. A big how-do to uh, all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto. 50,000 watts of uh, peace and love, AM 740, 96.7 FM, incidentally. Uh, Hello to all of you tuning in on uh, one of our affiliate stations, uh, those of you streaming us on YouTube, please take a moment and uh, reg- or subscribe to the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, also, uh, those of you listening via the podcast, uh, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, and TalkZone.com, and of course, those of you who listen in via the uh, the apps, Uh, The Conspiracy Show app and the Zoomer Radio app, both amazing and free downloads through iTunes, iTunes and Google Play. 
So however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Nick Redfern is standing by, the uh, prolific and compelling Nick Redfern. His new book is 365 Days of UFOs, A Year of Alien Encounters. And uh, Nick uh, has put together a compendium of uh, fascinating and in many cases never-before-seen events involving all things UFO, really. Crop circles, dead aliens head by the U.S. military, men in black, black-eyed children, radar-based UFO incidents, black helicopters, reptilians, uh, the chubacabra, uh, and much more. Uh, one for every day of the year. Uh, so today, for example, now this isn't in the book, but maybe it'll make uh, volume two. Uh, there was a UFO caught on camera in Mexico. It, it appears uh, to be coming out of the Colima volcano. Uh, I've tweeted the, uh, the story. Uh, if you go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and click on that, there's a, a time-lapse video embedded in the story. And you can see this light way off in the distance across the, uh, the cityscape. Uh, I'm not sure if it's Mexico City. I'm not sure uh, where exactly in Mexico it is, but the volcano is is in the distance on the horizon, and this tiny speck is seen, and then it gets larger and larger, and as it comes towards the camera uh, over the city, uh, we see this intense, intense ball of of light, and uh, it's difficult to, to tell how fast it's traveling because it's time-lapse. It's almost like a security-type camera. In other words, it's taking a still every, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds. Uh, so it's very difficult to gauge the, uh, the speed, but uh, it goes whipping past the camera's position, and uh, it's huge. Uh, that's, not, uh, you know, that's not the moon. Uh, the, the flight pattern seems to be fairly, um, I don't know, stable, if you will. It doesn't appear to be a meteorite, although uh, could be, don't know. You have a, a look at it and let me know. Uh, what you think it might be. So again, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and check it out and let me know what you think. All right, uh, very quickly before we get to Nick, it is uh, time for our What's in the Box segment and uh, our little remote viewing experiment. As I mentioned, the uh, the box has gone missing. It'll turn up, I'm sure. But in the meantime, let me, uh, for all of you listening at home, for those of you in studio, Ryan the intern, Albert, my story producer, and Ian in the next uh, room, on the other side of the glass, focus your attention uh, to the surface of my desk on my right, here on, uh, on the desk in studio in Liberty Village, 70 Jefferson Avenue, 70 Jefferson Avenue in Toronto, on my desk. Please focus your attention and uh, let me know what you think. Now, I'll, I'm going to continue to call it What's in the Box. That's the name of the segment, but it's not in the box tonight. And again, those of you who would like to, uh, to play along at home, please use the hashtag TCS Remote. TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show. Hashtag TCS Remote. And uh, whoever comes closest, or reasonably close, rather, um, I will set you up with some wonderful Conspiracy Show swag from our online store at theconspiracyshow.com. All right. Those of you, of course, associated with the program, not eligible for our grand prize, however, you get the, uh, the, uh, the satisfaction of knowing that you are now a, uh, a competent remote viewer. All right. Ian on the other side of the glass. What do you think it is? Any thoughts? As, uh... A cloth of some sort. A cloth. Yeah. 
Any? Is there a color? Um, I don't see any color, no. No, he just sees cloth. All right. Uh, let's go over to uh, Ryan the intern. Ryan? I, I just kind of... Uh... Something popped up in my mind, a little, almost like a little spiky ball, something that maybe looked like a, a dragon fruit or, or a jack, something, something. Jack fruit or a dragon fruit. Wow, yeah. that's pretty specific. A spiky mm-hmm. ball, perhaps a dragon fruit. All right. And uh, Albert? Well, I feel stumped this week. I think like the Quebec City shooting puts a downer on everything. But uh, I would guess, you know, maybe a can of tuna or a can of beans, maybe something in a tin can. Something in a tin can. All right. Uh, we'll do the reveal a little bit uh, later, but uh, you're, once again, sadly, way off the mark. All right. And uh, the Quebec shooting Albert mentioned, yes, horrible, horrible shooting in Quebec City at a mosque. Uh, earlier reports... Uh, that uh, up to five dead, although unconfirmed, two shooters, uh, both apparently in custody, and a number of individuals, again, we don't have a handle on the number yet, but injured, horrible tragedy at a mosque in Quebec City. Uh, obviously, our thoughts and prayers with the uh, uh, the victims, our condolences to the victims' families, and our prayers to the uh, those injured. Uh, very shocking that this would take place. Again, a shooting in the Quebec City at a mosque, and uh, this was apparently the same mosque last uh, summer, uh, I believe in June, uh, where a, um, a pig's head had been placed on the steps. So um, not sure if this is related to that or not. Apparently the assailant was overheard shouting Alu Akbar. Uh, but again, these, this, these are all very early reports, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get to the bottom of it before we say goodnight, or we'll know more anyway. All right, that being said... Let's uh, get to the, uh, the main entree, shall we? Nick Redfern is uh, the author of 40 books on UFOs, Lake Monsters, the Roswell UFO Crash, Zombies, Hollywood Scandals, including Men in Black, Chubacabra Road Trip, The Bigfoot Book, and Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. He's appeared on many TV shows, including Fox News, BBC's Out of This World, The Sci-Fi Channel, Proof Positive, The History Channel's Monster Quest, America's Book of Secrets, Ancient Aliens, and UFO Hunters, the Na- National Geographic Channel's uh, Paranatural and MSNBC's Countdown with Keith Olbermann. And um, his newest book, of course, is entitled 365 Days of UFOs, A Year of Alien Encounters. Nick Redfern, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Richard. How's it going? Very well. Uh, you know, it's amazing when you think of it that you can actually find uh, a, um, a report, a sighting uh, for, to fill in every single day in a calendar year. Now, the years jump around, 1947 to 1952 and so forth, but you've got a report from Jan- for January 1, 2, 3, all the way to December 31st. How, I mean, how long did it take you to fill in all those holes, or was it relatively easy because there's so much out there? Yeah, it actually was quite easy because, I mean, you know, Collectively, we've got thousands and thousands of UFO reports, um, you know, so there, I mean, I, I did an estimate of, um, you know, I saw one particular place where it was estimated that ufology as a subject had sort of catalogued some like, collectively like 25,000 reports. Now, if that's true, I don't know if it is, but if it, even if it's sort of 5,000, you know, you've only got to find 365, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it's actually not that difficult. But what I wanted to do was not do 365 cases that everybody's already heard about and then thought, well, what's the point, you know? So um, apart from, you know, a few cases that 
famous ones, you've got to put in, like Rendlesham Forest and Roswell right. and the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. You know, apart from sort of the, a few of the, the classics, what I wanted to do was to sort of um, give the reader, um, you know, a lot of cases that they wouldn't have seen before and just go with some very obscure ones, but also ones that are very interesting as well. Well, and, and to, to wit, um, one that pops out immediately is uh, January 2nd. This was one that I was not aware of, and this was a UFO crash in Denver, Colorado, back in the early 50s. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, this, you know, when everybody thinks of, um, you know, crashed UFOs, inevitably they think of, of Roswell, and then there's sort of the uh, Roswell's little brother, the Kecksburg case in Pennsylvania from 65, and the Aztec story from New Mexico uh, in 48. But, um, so, that, you know, there are a lot of stories like that out there, but there are some very lesser-known ones. And, um, yeah, this one that I'm talking about, um, basically, sort of, it was a UFO sighting um, that began with various encounters involving, for example, military pilots and a commercial airline pilot. And the story was that in the early 1950s, uh, specifically January the 2nd, 52, um, a UFO came down uh, somewhere near Denver, Colorado, late one particular night. Um, although sightings have been going on throughout the day. And the object was tracked on radar by a number of um, military bases and also airports, and military uh, planes were scrambled to intercept these things, and, um, and nobody knew what this thing was. But the, the story basically revolves around this thing coming down um, sort of in a hilly country, a hilly part of um, the the landscape outside of Denver and uh, a quick military cordon put into place and um, sort of the, the things we have here quite often about, you know, not just a cordon but the recovery of some sort of object and also the crew. But the, the story actually didn't surface until 2000 and we often find this in crashed UFO cases that, that um, people are sort of very um, reticent often not to talk about these events until they feel, you know, comfortable in coming forward in, in old age, so to speak. Nick Redfern, author of uh, 365 Days of UFOs, a year of um, alien encounters. Now, um, we'll take a time out, come back, and I want to talk about a case that you specifically were involved with in Puerto Rico back in the late 90s, and that has to do with chubacabras. We'll come back and discuss further with Nick Redfern right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Nick Redfern is with us. 365 days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters, and uh, some of these date back to uh, the 1920s. Uh, others, far more recent, and some of them you were uh, involved uh, in the investigation. And one such, again, dates back to uh, January, I think it's the 19th. And uh, this was a, uh, you were on the trail of the Chubacabra in Puerto Rico. Tell us about that, Nick. Yeah, well, I've been to uh, Puerto Rico on, uh, on many occasions looking for the Chupacabra. Um, first time I went out there was in um, 2004, and the most recent time was uh, 2014. So that's sort of 10 years of going back and forth and, and investigating reports of this strange creature known as the Chupacabra. And when the reports first surfaced, um, people were describing this very strange creature that sort of ran around on two legs and had this sort of row of spikes down its head and neck and these bright red eyes. And what was interesting is that many of the locations where people were seeing the chupacabras on Puerto Rico uh, was the same locations where people were seeing UFOs. And one of the sort of hot spots for both was this massive rainforest on Puerto Rico called the El Yunque Rainforest. And that's where, as I said, a lot of the reports come from. Now, the the particular case you're talking about, ironically, um, I received this one the first time I went there. And this was with um, a team from the Sci-Fi Channel to make a, a show called Proof Positive. And this was the, the summer of um, 2004. We interviewed a woman who was actually out picking plantains, which is one of the sort of local delicacies on Puerto Rico, and she saw this uh, UFO land in a clearing in the rainforest, and it was described, it wasn't actually that big, um, sort of about 25 feet across or thereabouts, and, um, but it was sort of like a classic flying saucer, you know, sort of perfect circle, silver in colour, and what was sort of really weird is that the, the sighting um, of the UFO actually coincided uh, as the object landed, it coincided with this chupacabra-type animal charging across this open area as a doorway opened on the craft and essentially sort of bounded into the craft, which then shot away into the sky. Now, you know, it sounds sort of bizarre and over the top, but, um, you know, the witness came across as very, very credible and just, you know, didn't want any publicity other than, you know, she was happy to be interviewed, but she preferred um, that her face was sort of in shadow. Um, wasn't looking for money or anything like that. She just wanted to share the story of what she'd seen and came across as very, very credible, as I say. And um, But I get a lot of stories like that from Puerto Rico where the Chupacabra has been seen, you know, associated with UFO activity as well. Uh, we are, um, well, I guess in just a little less than a month, coming up on a, a pretty significant uh, history, um, uh, anniversary uh, in ufology, and that's the, the Battle of Los Angeles. It started February uh, the 24th, 1942, of course, uh, Southern California. Uh, and, uh, you know, keeping in mind, this is uh, uh, two and a half months, uh, let's say, no, a little, well, just after Pearl Harbor, of course, in December of 1941. So for those not familiar with the Battle of Los Angeles, uh, February 24th, 1942, what happened? Well, yeah, I mean, this was sort of a, you know, an interesting time in, you know, American history because, it, as you say, it was only a couple of months after, <coughs> excuse me, after Pearl Harbor was bombed, you know, which sort of set 
um, shockwaves throughout the the country, which quite understandably as well. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, were sort of on edge um, you know, when America entered the war, worried about other attacks. And certainly the the one time other than Pearl Harbor itself that really sort of had people on an edge, so to speak, were the events that occurred on the night of uh, the 24th and the 25th of February 1942. Now, there's a reason why I sort of include this case in the book, in a UFO book, is because although the initial thought was that when these strange lights and sort of objects were seen flying through the clouds over Los Angeles on the night in question, um, what was happening is that people were assuming that these things were... um, Japanese fighter planes or bombers, you know, there was, there was no other alternative. The, the term back then, you know, UFOs had never even been contemplated on, same with flying saucers, you know, the, the phenomenon didn't kick off till 47, this was 42. Right, so and they were expecting thought, an attack. They were, the naval, naval intelligence were mm-hmm. warning within 10 hours there could be an attack. That's right, and, um, but what was really weird is that nobody ever really identified any of these things as looking like Japanese aircraft or any aircraft. Um, they, uh, for, for the most part, they were sort of within the clouds, or at least partly in the clouds, which made difficulty seeing them. What was really weird, if, they, if it was a uh, sort of a Japanese squadron, is that um, you know there were no bullets used, um, no bombs used. You know the city wasn't attacked, um, but the um, the guys on the ground who were working this sort of um, ground-to-air. Um, uh, guns and so forth. The anti-aircraft batteries, um, yeah. They um, they were reporting that they could see these things, but they weren't damaging any of them. And what was really weird is that some of them were flying at extremely slow speeds, you know, almost to the point of speeds where an aircraft would stall. Now, what's interesting, and I relate this in the book, is that a lot of files on this event have been released through the Freedom Information Act, and they sort of tell a fascinating story of how throughout the evening and the early hours of the following morning, um, you know, the military was sort of up to its neck in trying to figure out what these things were and blast them out the sky, but with no luck at all. And so for all intents and purposes, they were UFOs. And um, as I said, it was never resolved or solved. Um, There was no damage done, no bombs dropped. So, you know, there's a lot of weird angles to it if it was the Japanese. And there's a lot of a big case could be made that actually wasn't the Japanese, which, of course, begs the question, who was it? Well, the, the anti-aircraft barriers on the ground, they were actually firing at these uh, yeah. orbs, correct? Was there any damage as a result of the anti-aircraft fire? No, there actually wasn't. I mean, there were rumors and stories that, you know, some of the um, the crews thought they had had actually hit some of these objects. But again, you know, nothing came crashing down to the ground like a, you know, an intact aircraft or, you know, no wings were blown off and came crashing down, you know, in a Los Angeles street or anything like that. Um, as I said, it was just, it was so bizarre because whatever these things were, they were actually quite low, but they eluded every and any attempt, attempt to sort of blow them out of the sky. Just a quick departure from uh, from your book, 365 Days of UFOs. Uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we had uh, the CIA uh, 
well, these 13 million uh, pages were ma- they were public, they were available, but you had to go down to College Park, Maryland, and and actually get on the on the uh, the CIA server to access them. Um, I'm just wondering if you'd had a chance to look at any of the uh, the documents that are now available online pertaining to to UFOs, and and what your thought uh, your thoughts were regarding the the uh, the latest mm. intelligence dump. Yeah, well, I mean. A lot of people don't realize that most of those CIA UFO files were actually released many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the good thing is that there's this sort of more openness with the files where, you know, there was a big press release and a big news statement, you know, coming from the CIA that, we, you know, this material is coming out there and it's far easily accessible, you know, sort of even as far back as like 10 years ago, you would have to... To get these, you know, you would have to write to the CIA and they would mail you paper copies, which would cost a lot of money, you know, for postage and um, photocopying, etc. But now, you know, we, we've got an easy, accessible place to go to where, you know, you can access them. Kind of like the FBI a couple of years ago, they created a really good um, website called The Vault, which um, lists, you know, thousands of different topics. Um, including all their UFO and paranormal files and things like this. So, uh, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's a good development. You know, it's, uh, it's demonstrating not just the, um, you know, the willingness to sort of share the material, but make it much easier for us to acquire this material and read it. So, um, but, you know, aside from the UFO stuff, I mean, a lot of the material had not been seen before. Or, as you said, it was just... It was just difficult to sort of have to, you know, travel to uh, an, an official archive and read the papers there when now, you know, we can just see them online. Right. The, re- the remote viewing uh, stuff is pretty interesting about Yuri Geller and, and uh, Project Stargate down at Fort Meade and so forth. Uh, but it's you know, it's going to take a long while to sift through all of that material. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the remote viewing stuff, there is actually quite a bit of new material there, which... Uh, you know, the, the whole remote viewing program, which sort of really kicked off big time in the 70s, where, you know, um, people, were be, personnel were being trained to essentially psychically spy on potentially hostile nations. And, um, and what's interesting is that although in some cases the, you know, the operations worked, on other occasions they didn't. And even the guys who were skilled at doing this admitted that for whatever reason, even they didn't understand, it would be like a hit-and-miss thing. And, of course, if you're dealing with sort of espionage and, you know, spying on on friendly nations, you don't want hit-and-miss. You want hit every time. You know, you you want to make sure your intelligence data is fully correct. Um, And so I think that may be one of the reasons why it was more sort of like a fallback... um, um, approach when every other approach had failed. You know, it's like um, if they couldn't find it through, um, you know, sort of having agents in the field or wiretaps, that kind of thing, then they would fall back on the remote viewing um, because it was perceived as being helpful, but it certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't opening doors like, for example, regular espionage would. Right, I think I think they were embarrassed uh, when it when word got out, and I think more than anything that had to do with their decision to sort of cancel uh, the, pro- the well, program. It's a lot like when the police 
when it gets word gets out that they, they were consulting with psychics to find a missing child or something. They're kind of it. it for them, it, it makes it look like they're desperate. Well, yeah, there is that angle, and I think that there's also the issue of they feel that I think sometimes they might feel that it's affecting their credibility. But if you read the files, there's absolutely no doubt that on some occasions, you know, th- these events did work. Oh, 100%. You know, yes. It was to the point where it was clearly beyond coincidence. And, um, and so I think for that reason, um, you know, they would have preferred the information to sort of remain hidden because, you know, then having to answer all the questions of why you're using psychics, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think a lot of it was sort of, you know, the sort of the public appearance of, you know, should we tell people we use psychics, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, Nick Redfern with us and his new book, 365 Days of UFOs, A Year of Alien Encounters. And, um, this is a, another one that I had not heard of. Uh, this, you know, we talk about how people who witness uh, unide- unidentified flying objects, they're often uh, left with a, you know, in a profound state of uh, wonder or even uh, stress, anxiety. Uh, I mean, I've, I've talked to people who have seen these, those huge triangular uh, craft uh, that are so large they've obliterated the night sky. And you talk to these people, they're practically in tears. They're so traumatized by seeing something like that, whatever it was. But occasionally, as you point out, uh, sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes a UFO encounter results in the witness's death. This goes back to March of 1946. Tell us about it. Well, yeah, this is an interesting one because, you know, 1946 was actually, you know, sort of uh, a year or so thereabouts before the entire UFO phenomenon itself actually began. Right. You know, and... Um, Kenneth Arnold in 47. It, um, you know, a significant one in terms of the fact that um, it essentially, you know, predated uh, the Kenneth Arnold famous sighting by um, by one year. Um, it actually was sort of one of the most grisly UFO cases. And um, it involved a guy named Juan Prestes Filho. And he lived in a little Brazilian village. And... He was uh, walking home late one night and kind of had that feeling that we all have from time to time that somebody's watching you or something's watching you. You know, you just kind of have that feeling, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck go up and you turn around and and somebody is watching you. You know, we, we can all kind of do that, even though we don't really know how or why. And he had that feeling. But rather than a person following him, as he looked, as he turned back, he saw this um, light, this um, bright light in the sky hovering above him, which, as he turned um, around, it sort of bathed him in this um, this powerful light, you know, almost like a, like a spotlight kind of situation. Now, almost immediately, the story is that he felt his body suddenly heating up, you know, immediately. Um, and then it got sort of more disturbing where his skin started to peel as if he'd had sort of like a bad sunburn, you know, as if in the way your skin can peel off. Now, he got back home, and within minutes, um, it wasn't just like his skin was flaking, but it was boiling, it was bubbling. Now, from there, um, he was rushed to the local hospital by the family, and reportedly, as as, as strange and as sort of, you know, terrible as it sounds, that he essentially started just melt away, you know, until the point where there was 
barely anything left, you know. Oh, my it's Lord. a case of scooping up what was left. Now, although, you know, people might say, well, this is just not possible, you know, it's like a friend of a friend tale. It actually isn't. Um, some of the hospital people actually came forward. Uh, one of them, a man named Arasi Golmide, uh, was actually on duty at the time and saw him when he was brought in and said, you know, it just looked like something had burned him with a like a localised, directed weapon of some sort. Um, and various other people from the hospital have come out as well. So, you know, despite the sort of fantastic nature of it, it, it does have sort of a, a, a credible body of people who've, who've supported the story. Gruesome uh, indeed. All right, that's from March 5th of 1946, just one of the entries in this cosmic calendar 365 days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters. Nick Redfern, my guest, he stays with us. Hope you will too. Back with more in a moment. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, well, welcome back. We'll get back to our conversation with Nick Redfern in just a moment. 365 Days of UFOs. A year of alien encounters, and uh, I want to ask uh, Nick about something a little closer to home, uh, at least up here in Canada. Uh, we'll go out to Manitoba in 1967, May, I believe, of 67. And people talk about, you know, no physical evidence, no trace evidence of, of uh, UFOs. Well, here's a case where there was some trace evidence, radioactive soil and burn marks and so forth. We'll get to that in a second. Let me, um, let me just get to the uh, what's in the box reveal. Again, we lost our box momentarily. We'll, be, we'll, get it, uh, we'll get it back. Don't worry. As I said earlier, I think I, I suspect one of my little guys is using it to store his hockey carts under his bed. <laughs> However, uh, the item has been sitting on my desk uh, since 11 p.m. this evening. And um, let me just go. Uh, first of all, Albert, what are uh, people uh, guessing on the, uh, on the Twitter feed? Okay. Uh, Lucy Furious said a key of some sort. Uh, Patricia says it's a snow globe. Kentucky Green Thumb says a small wind-up toy. Uh, Carlsberg says a notepad. Aaron G. says a calculator. And uh, Mike R. says a mirror or a reflective metal. And someone listening last week says a domino. <laughs> that was last week, right? Yeah, Chris. Right. <laughs> Let me go to the uh, live chat from our uh, YouTube channel. City Lights is guessing a toothbrush. L.M. Stewart, an egg beater. Hawk9955 says a bolt. Um, I'm going to mispronounce this name. Y-Y-W-A-I-W-A-I-N-L-A. Uh, um, oh, hang on. I don't, she doesn't offer a guess. She just says the, the box has gone AWOL. Yes, indeed. Someone calling himself George Norrie says it's John Teeter's time machine. And uh, let's see. Who else? Anything else? Um... That's about it, I think. Just scrolling down here very quickly. I don't see any other guesses. All right, so it's time for the uh, for the big reveal. It's a clothespin. There you go. 
Was anyone even close on the Twitter feed? Go back and look. I don't think so. Yeah, Didn't no, sound I don't like think it. so. No one close. All right. Well, we'll start again next. We'll try it again next week. That's our What's in the Box segment. And again, you can uh, guess, uh, use the hashtag TCS Remote, but we'll uh, put that away for now. All right. Back uh, to Nick Redfern, 365 Days of UFOs. So, May of 67, out in, uh, in Manitoba. Uh, tell us about this case. Yeah, this is a, an interesting one, uh, Richard. It's sort of one of the, again, like a, a lesser-known one. And uh, occurred just out on a farm just outside of Manitoba, Canada, in uh, in May 67. So it's actually sort of pretty much coming up to its uh, its 50th anniversary shortly. And uh, the event itself, as I said, occurred on this particular um, farm, and it was um, pretty much coming up to midnight when this encounter occurred. And a woman was sat outside um, the porch waiting for her husband to come home and encountered this sort of extremely bright light, which is sort of a reddish-pink colour. And it had like a a bluish light uh, next to it. Uh, But she couldn't tell at first um, exactly what it was because it was sort of the lights were the the dominating factor. Um, And so we're not really sure what shape the object was because... Um, you know, the the object itself was sort of, um, you know, overwhelmed by the, the brightness of the lights. But whatever it was, um, it sort of beamed like a, a bright light down to the ground and and came to the ground itself, landed. Now, the woman, quite understandably, was sort of terrified by, by this and raced into the house, locked the door, etc. And when her husband got home, um, she sort of said, you know, don't go outside, just you know, let's go out in the morning and have a look. Well, it turns out that when they went out um, the next day into one of the fields, what they found was like a, it was like a half circle uh, of ground that was flattened and that was, was actually burning. In places, it was sort of smoking and smoldering, but in other places, there was sort of um, flames were still um, sort of emanating from the ground. And... Um, the even the, the, just the fact that about sort of about three weeks later, the area was still smoldering that hadn't sort of gone away, which kind of sort of begs the question, you know, what could have left this particular mark? Now, obviously, wasn't something like a meteorite because it, you know, it didn't slam into the ground at high speed. It was actually flying quite slowly and then deliberately came down in the field adjacent to the farm. So. Um, Again, in that sense, you know, it was a definitive UFO. Well, and the other interesting thing, as you point out, in 365 days of UFOs, in this case, uh, it was smoldering despite the fact that there was considerable rain having fallen in the area. And perhaps the real kicker, radioactive soil was found at the site. So for those who say no trace evidence whenever there are UFO sightings, there you go. All right, back to uh, more of my conversation with Nick Redfern. 365 days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You know, I was just uh, scrolling down on the live chat here on our YouTube stream, and um, Hydro to Wheel 
Hydro to Wheel actually came pretty close. Uh, they said, I'm not sure if Hydro to Wheel is a, is a he or a she, but uh, they said something wooden. And you know what? That's about as close as we've gotten in quite a while. It is something wooden. It was a, a clothespin. So Hydro to Wheel will get in touch, and I'm going to send you out a mug from the uh, Conspiracy Show. Thank you so much. Uh, now I've got to figure out how do we uh, contact Hydro to Wheel through the live chat. I guess I'll get them to uh, send me. Let me just type that in. Send me your email, Addy. Hydro. Okay. Back to uh, Nick Redfern. Uh, You've written uh, entire volumes about men in black. And uh, there's a story in the book. I'm not sure the date. I think it goes back to January as well. And this has to do with women in black. Tell me about that. Well, you've actually got several cases of women in black in the book, and it's sort of a, a little-known aspect of the, the men in black mystery. You know, people think of the men in black, they think of Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith from the movies, you know, but uh, in most real reports, which the movies were based on, uh, people describe the men in black as sort of looking pale and skinny, and they would have these oversized eyes that they would hide behind these wraparound sunglasses, and They'd wear black fedoras and black suits and trench coats with the collars turned up, almost as if they were trying to sort of camouflage their real appearance, which actually comes across as sort of almost like an alien-human hybrid. It sounds bizarre, but that's how they sort of look. And this is how a lot of the women in black are described as well, um, where they, again, sort of very sort of um, very slim, pale, pale skin, almost look completely white skin and again they often wear these wraparound sunglasses uh, I've got several cases in the book where for example people um, had seen um, UFOs there's a, one I talk about in the book from 67 where not unlike the Canadian one we just talked about where the witness actually lived in an isolated farmhouse in the in New York State and he saw this one particular day, he saw this uh, typical flying saucer-type craft hovering over his property, about 30 or 40 feet diameter, clearly metallic, and then sort of sh suddenly shot away at high speed. Now, the very next day, this sort of strange-looking, eerie woman turned up on the front door, and essentially, she, she claimed to be um, a gypsy selling items, you know, would, would the man be willing to buy something? But he got this extremely strange vibe from her because in no time at all, the conversation was turned around to the UFO subject and had he seen anything unusual in the sky. And he was sort of very reluctant to let her in the house and made his excuses and, and didn't let her in. But he, he described her as, you know, sort of looking not entirely human, um, as I said, with the... And she even had, like, this long black wig on, which um, was in, like, a style, like, Bangs style. So, you know, it came down... The hair came below her forehead, um, you know, ran by her eyebrows and pulled into the side of her face. So he could, he could barely make anything out with the sunglasses on as well, which may have been the point. But um, it was a very weird and almost sort of ominous encounter that, um, you know, sort of really disturbed him when, when this occurred. I'm a sucker for any story involving dead aliens, and there's a number of them in the book. Uh, one goes back to July of 62, uh, although it didn't surface for about 20 years. This, this is uh, somewhere in northern New Mexico. 
Yeah, well, um, over the years, you know, there have been a lot of reports of, um, you know, UFOs crashing, excuse me, crashing to the ground. The most famous one, obviously, you know, being Roswell. Now, we get re- a lot, there are a lot of reports around the world of crashed UFOs. It, you know, it's not just um, in the United States. Um, but the one you're talking about was from July uh, the 9th, 1962. And this particular case was given to a UFO researcher named Leonard Stringfield, who, who died in 1994. But he uh, essentially focused on accounts of crashed UFOs. You know, he didn't really investigate sightings or abductions. That, his main area of interest was, was crashed saucers. And um, he was given this story uh, by a fellow researcher, Tommy Bland. And the story was that, well, he actually came from a, a colonel in the military. And, um, and the story was that, again, sort of like a typical flying saucer type craft had come down in uh, northern New Mexico in 62. And it was round about 30 feet in diameter and about 12 feet in height. And whatever the object was, it seems to have tried to maneuver, or the pilots had tried to maneuver it into sort of a crash landing rather than, you know, slamming into the ground. And it reportedly skidded along the ground for quite a significant uh, distance. And um, reportedly some sort of quick reaction military team came out, uh, comprised of about eight, seven or eight people, wearing gas masks and jumpsuits, which suggested, you know, they may have been anticipating some sort of contamination. And reportedly there were two dead bodies found within the craft and um, placed in some sort of um, military vehicle and taken away. Now, they were reportedly taken to Holloman Air Force Base for study and also to the Los Alamos Laboratories, also in New Mexico, for autopsy. Now, what happened after that, we don't know. But Stringfield, you know, he was a, he was a credible researcher. He was a former military officer. And as was Tommy Bland, he was in the military as well, you know. So we had two credible stories, for the, excuse me, two credible individuals for this story. Speaking of alien bodies, and I don't know if this uh, story is in the, uh, in the book. I haven't read all 365 day, uh, 65 entries. But um, we go back to 73. And uh, Jackie Gleason, who, uh, marvelous entertainer, and of course the Honeymooners, star of the Honeymooners, and he had a real fascination with UFOs uh, and um, supposedly had a huge UFO library. They did. Uh, I think it was donated to the University of Miami uh, and was also a pretty um, a staunch Repo- Republican, eventually became pretty good friends with Richard Nixon. They, were, uh, they played golf together. And the story goes that uh, sometime in uh, February of 73, Nixon took Gleason to, uh, was it Homestead Air Force Base? Right, and, Homestead, yeah. and showed him alien bodies. Uh, is that in the book, by the by? And, and, and what do you make of that story? Mm. Well, it's not in the book, no, but um, it, it is an interesting story, and it's become sort of almost legendary in ufology. And as you pointed out, that, you know, Jackie Gleason not only being, you know, a very famous. Uh, comedian, um, but he had a, he had a massive interest in UFOs. Like, I mean, a very for a comedian, he had an extremely serious interest in ufology and had a, a huge library of books and magazines and journals and things like that. And um, the the story is that because he was very close friends with Nixon, as you said, they golfed together. Um, 
that Nixon decided to sort of let Gleason know that, you know, what he was doing wasn't a waste of time, that there was something to it. And the story is that, that um, late one night, Nixon got um, Gleason clearance, or the, or the two of them, to um, enter one particular uh, sort of well-guarded section of Homestead Air Force Base in Florida. And the story is that um, Nixon was allowed or Lixon uh, was able to give uh, Gleason access to a, a quick look at these bodies. And uh, apparently, by all accounts, the, the people that Gleason told, the bodies were extremely damaged. They sort of looked almost like old little men. Um, they were sort of preserved in these tanks, and uh, but they were extremely damaged, you know, the kind of damage you would see from, like, a plane crash, you know, just sort of massive trauma. And ironically... Um, whereas, you know, I guess beforehand, Gleason might have, um, you know, been really excited to know what he was going to see. But afterwards, apparently, it was like he was in a state of shock and didn't want to talk about it and was deeply disturbed by what he'd seen. But um, the story actually came out from his wife, Beverly McKittrick, and she uh, went public with this story. Um, but Gleason himself would never comment on it. He just you know, he, he just totally clammed up, which in itself is interesting. You know, you would think that perhaps if there was something to it, he might have said years later, well, OK, I'll tell you what I saw. But he, he just would not say anything at all. I'm just trying to remember whether uh, Larry Warren, who I've, I've talked to a number of times from the Rendlesham Forest uh, in, UFO incident, whether, didn't Warren have contact with Gleason? Didn't Gleason confirm that story to him, or am I misremembering? Yeah, yeah. yeah Larry actually met um, Gleason back in the 80s, and um, and I think it was on in relation to a TV show, but I might be wrong. But but anyway, um, Gleason confirmed basically what he'd also told his wife, you know, the, the, the essential parts of the story. So, But several people apparently were told this story over the years, but certainly, you know, um, Beverly McKittrick as um, Gleason's wife, you know, um, the media actually picked up on that quite widely. Nick, congratulations. Uh, what is this, book number 40, by yeah, my count? Yeah. <laughs> 40 books. My gosh. Uh, that is uh, quite a remarkable accomplishment. 365 days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters. Nick, as always, thank you for hanging out. All right. I appreciate it, Richard. Thank you. Bye-bye. Nick Redfern. My thanks to uh, Ian, Ryan, Albert, of course, and all of you for listening at home. Back next week with a brand-new program. Hope you'll be along for that one. George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe and actress Marina Anderson, uh, the uh, former wife of the late David Carradine, with lots of paranormal encounters. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.